It's time for Glover's Golden Oldies. A look back at some of the Glover's heroes from recent years. Well, good evening and welcome to Glover's Golden Oldies. And this week we're delighted to welcome to the show Mr. Steve Rutter. Well, good morning, Steve. Um, nice of you to join us. Uh, to get an old Yeovil Town manager and player on the show is uh, indeed a bit of a coup. So well done for coming on. <laughs> That's all right, mate. I'm not sure I'm too much of a coup, though, but um, go on. We'll crack on anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, look upon it as uh, this is your life meets Desert Island Discs, all right? Yeah. <laughs> so you were born in 1962 in Northampton, and I take it from this, you your youth career started, as most do, at the local club, which was Northampton Town, I take it. it yeah, it did. I mean, the system was massively different back then. Obviously, there was no P or academy system, so it was... It was very much hit and miss. Um, in fact, we trained at a local sports centre and our coach was a, a young lad called Jerry Barry who was a painter and decorator. Oh, yeah. Um, so, he, he, yeah, so he would come rushing up about five minutes before the session started, unload a bag of balls out the back of his white van and, and, and pile onto the pitch, sometimes still in his painting gear. So it, it wasn't as professional as people would uh, expect it to be now. Well, well qualified, though, nonetheless. Oh yeah, and a great lad as well. And and yeah. to be fair, when you look back on it, you know um, those sorts of things, you it make they make you appreciate what you know what the world looks like now. Really, to be yeah, honest. yeah. So uh, from from a youth career at Northampton, how did your your career develop from there? Um, well, I was. They used to have like a. A, a training program, and and I didn't get taken onto the training program when I left school, so I stayed on at school, um, and and basically just carried on playing as a as a youth and then a non contract player, and, and went into non league football in the local area. So I played for a number of the sides who, um, you know, in that sort of geographical area. But Wellingborough, yeah. I played for Royston Town and Earthlingborough Diamonds before they combined to become Royston and Diamonds, who obviously are a long standing sort of like rivalry with the Oval in the old uh, sort of yeah. conference days. Yeah. Um, and then as, as I went through a range of odd jobs and, and wanted to be a footballer, but probably wasn't really good enough, if I'm honest. Um, so I played at semi-pro level, did a range of jobs, and then eventually I joined the police force um, as a, generally as a, as, a, as a police constable to start off with, but then moved into the training department and specialised as a physical training and self-defence instructor. All right. Um, yeah. And through that, met Brian Hall, who was obviously the British police manager at the time and manager of Wealdstone. Um, and Wealdstone's probably about an hour's drive from Northampton straight down the M1. And, and Brian, as he was, was unbelievably committed to his role. He, he, he came and watched me one Sunday morning playing for Northampton's police. I can remember there'd been a murder the night before, so we only had <laughs> 10 players from start to finish. Um, and we drew nil-nil, and it was a real rearguard action. So I had a chance to display my, my attributes, I suppose. And um, yeah. From that, he picked me for the British police side and then he, he persuaded me to travel each week down to Wealdstone to play and then ultimately, obviously, from Wealdstone to Yeovil. So if you're into all this self-defence stuff, then best not pick a fight with you, all right? <laughs> well, it was a long time ago. Um, and, and I think from memory, because I was quite light and quite slight and was quite athletic and a lot of the other physical training instructors were into other things like they were actually into martial arts or weightlifting. Yeah. I think I got my badges because I allowed them all to throw me all over the mat and <laughs> I was a good dummy. So I think I got my badges based on that rather than my attacking prowess. 
So presumably your connection with Wheelstone and Brian Hall was what led to the move to Yeovil Town, yeah? Yeah, no, it did. And um, <laughs> it's strange how things conspire in life, isn't it? Because obviously I'd met Brian. Brian then moved to, to Yeovil, which was a step down from Wheelstone, because at the time Wheelstone were a conference club and, and obviously Yeovil were in the Ishmael League. Yeah. And the distances were vast and the roads weren't the same. And, that, you know, it took me four hours the first time I drove to Yeovil, four and a half hours the first time I came down from Northampton. Right. Um, a lot of it was single carriageway. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Brian moved and then the police force decided that, as they do sometimes, for my own personal development, I should move back out onto general duties, which meant going out and doing nights and weekends and all sorts of working. Right. Um, whereas the job as a PTI was Monday to Friday, nine to five, and I could train as much as I wanted and I could play football at weekends. So the two things sort of corresponded. I, I got an offer at the same time from Lincoln City, who had just gone back into the Football League. Um, and Brian offered me a deal down at Yeovil. And so I left the police force and actually moved down to Yeovil full-time so I had half a season playing semi-pro and then I moved down on, on a full-time basis right well let's have Steve's first choice of music for the show and that is called Bat Out of Hell and of course it's by Meatloaf Sounds are screaming and the fires are howling we're down in the valley tonight there's a man that shines with the gum in his eye And a blade shining no so bright There's evil in the air and there's thunder in the sky And a killer's on the bloodshot streets Born down in the town where the deadly arise And oh, I swear I saw a young boy down in the gutter He was stopping the foam in the heat Baby, you're the only thing in this whole world that's good and good and right. And wherever you are and wherever you go, there's always gonna be some light. But I gotta get out, I gotta break it out now before the final cut it down. So we gotta make the most of our one night together when it's over, you know. We'll both be so alone.
Meatloaf and Bat Out of Hell. So uh, you ended up at Yeovil in 1987, according to Wikipedia. Is that about right? Um, yeah, it is. Uh, about about 80, end of 86, 87 season, I came down. Um, I think I played something like six or seven games at the end of that season. And a, a very different, presumably, Yeovil Town to the way we see it today. I mean, just tell us about some of the players that were there and you know what it was like in those days. Well, the first thing, obviously, was it was at the old ground. So right, it was yeah. still on the sloping pitch down the Hewish. Yeah. Um, we were in the Lyman League or the Ishmael League, as it was. Um, but it was a massive club in, in that in that environment, to be fair. I mean, I, I think on the, the following season, when we won the league, we won the league at the League Cup and the Charity Shield and everything and got promoted back to the conference. And I think, on, I think it was over the Christmas period, we played Farnborough. And we had a crowd of 6,200 or something at the old Hewish. I mean, that's an incredible. Yeah. Um, but there were some, you know, there were some lads there who, who have stayed in the game and gone on, to be fair. I mean, some good lads. Obviously, John McGinley was one yeah. who was a real character. Um, <laughs> left the Oval a bit later on. And, and many people, I suppose, probably thought that he would just disappear and, and never be seen again. But he went back up to Scotland, obviously reinvented himself, scored a lot of goals. I think it was in Nairn County. Um, got a move down to Shrewsbury, then went to Millwall, then went to Bolton. You know, got picked for Scotland at senior international level and, and had a terrific career. Um, so that was a really good plus. Mickey Doherty came. Um, Mick now, I think he's something like Chief Scout at Celtic or somewhere at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so there were a lot of good lads, people like Jerry Pearson. Um, 
but when, when I came down, it was a, it was a real shock. As I say, the first time was about a four and a half hour drive, and and you know, I'd never been down to Yeovil before, anywhere near. Um, but it was it was a real eye opener when you when you played your first home game and you saw the crowd and the way they were and what it meant to people. It was you know, people say it's a unique club, but in in those days and in the context of Yeovil being FA Cup giant killers, etc., it was a very unique club. And, and it says something that a, a, that a player can leave Yeovil as John McGinley did, and as you say, reinvent himself and end up playing for Scotland. Yeah, I think some, sometimes you know certain people just suit certain environments. I mean, if you look at not long after that, obviously when John left, um, we signed Guy Whittingham, yeah. um, and Guy Whittingham was at Waterlooville, and right on the doorstep of Portsmouth, and was scoring goals for fun in the Southern League. They didn't fancy him. He, he, you know, we signed him. Brian Hall signed him. He was in the services, so it was a non-contracting. So there was he wasn't on a playing contract, so you couldn't guarantee getting any money for him if he moved on because mm. um, he wasn't allowed to sign a contract. So he came and played as a you know as a non-contract player. Um, within a season, he'd gone to Portsmouth and then went from Portsmouth to Villa, Sheffield Wednesday, and and again, you know, like a stellar career. So. Mm. It happens, um, and I think there have been a lot of players that have come through the Yeovil ranks. You know, which recently people like Kiefer Moore have gone on and had really good careers, and there's been a lot of players that have passed through Yeovil who have gone on to have significant careers at you know at other clubs. But you say you had a crowd of six thousand. I bet they give their right arm to have a crowd of six thousand in the Hewish Park at the moment. Yeah, well, yeah I, I think <laughs> they probably would, but. Every, I think everything is is to do with the time, isn't it? And if you look mm. if you look back a few years ago when Graham Roberts was there and they got relegated back down to the Ryman League, um, uh, Ryman Ishman, it keeps changing name, doesn't it? Yeah. Basically, it's the London area sort of non-league, yeah. one step below the conference. Yeah, you know, at the end of the season when they got promoted, they were getting nine thousand again. It was a full house, mm. and and whatever league you're in, if you're at the top end of the league, you tend to get better crowds than if you're at the bottom of the league above. It's just the way it is. People want to be associated with success. They want to go and see a winning team. Um, Yeovil always has and probably always will have a hardcore of 2,100, 2,200 fans, something like that. And then everything else is a bonus. Um, but they do retain that sort of support base. And, and they retain that, I think, if they're in the Western League. How much uh, do you, can you remember or how much it was to get in to see a game in those days? Oh, I never had to pay, actually. No, I don't suppose <laughs> you luckily, did. No, 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 I, have no idea, I have no idea. It's probably like three shillings and sixpence or yeah. something in old money. I can't remember. No, I was, um, I was just wondering, you no, know, from a point of view of, yeah. of comparison, whether it was, uh, you know, <sighs> ludicrously I, I, cheap compared to what it is today. I mean, 25 quid to go and see a game is quite a lot of money these days, isn't it? It, it is, but then everything's expensive, isn't it? You know, you stop on the motorway, you buy a cup of coffee, and it's three pound fifty or three pound sixty or something. Well, yeah. who would have ever thought that you'd pay three pound sixty for a cup of coffee? But no, that's right. You know, you could you could buy a whole coffee plantation for three pound sixty thirty years ago, couldn't you? But yeah. that's the way the world is now. The money doesn't have. You know, I can remember somebody saying to me, "If you want to live the lifestyle of a millionaire now, you need at least ten million pounds." Yeah, because being a millionaire doesn't really equate to a lot in the modern world because no. everything is just so expensive. No, that's true enough. So We, we sound old, we sound old, don't we? We sound prob- really old and grumpy. Probably because we are, but <laughs> that's another story. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you, you were at Yeovil from 87 to 93. What would you say were the highlights of your career there? 
Um, well, it's, it's split into two, really. As a player, obviously, that first se- the 87-88 season when we won everything and got promoted back to the conference um, was great. And then we won the Bob Lord Trophy the following season, which was like the League Cup then for the conference. Um, so that was a major, you know, other than the, the conference itself and the FA Trophy, mm. it, it's the most, you know, it's the most prestigious of the non-league awards where it was. Um, but then, obviously, as a manager... Uh, it, it took a massive toll. After, you know, I can sit back now and look at it and say it took a massive toll on me personally because um, I had two and a half years there and virtually from day one, the club were in serious financial difficulties. Yeah. Um, I remember Brian Moore, the chairman, who was who's passed away since, but rest his soul, was, you know, and they were all real Yeovil people, the people on the board. Um, but when the club moved, it obviously made bad decisions, financial decisions about how much money it spent on the new ground and how much money it got for the old ground. And I've never known a club move from one stadium to another and end up in debts. You know, normally you make money on selling the town centre site and moving out of town, yeah. but for some reason it didn't work that way at Yeovil. Um, so actually keeping the club afloat, there was a year when we were so bad that we actually did a jailbreak, what we called a jailbreak. And um, Paul Wilson, who was the youth coach, and John Flatters, who's still around in town now, yeah. um, who did some work on the community, they they made a pair. Paul Rogers, who was the coach, and myself, we made a pair, and we were sponsored to go as far as we could in 24 hours, Yeah, get a memento from a football club and come back. You know, And we, we did that for sponsorship. And we went to Aberdeen, and I think John and um, Paul went to PSV Eindhoven. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got sponsored to do that in order to raise money um, to put into the club coffers and I was the manager and Paul was Budgie was first team coach Paul Rogers yeah. um, we were doing bucket collections around the ground every game you know, mm. people were collecting money it was, it was ridiculous um, and so I suppose the night we won the FA Cup replay at Hereford yeah. when we went we drew we drew in the second round at home didn't we nil nil yeah. I think Mickey Spencer wherever he is he's probably listening missed an absolute sitter we should have won that and uh, he fired it over the crossbar we went to Hereford and um, we already knew that the prize for that was a home tie with Arsenal in the third round. Um, and we went to Hereford and we won 2-1. Um, Paul Sanderson scored with a header. I think Owen Pickard then equalised really late in the game. And then Neil Coates came on as a sub and scored the winner. And I think that's my proudest moment. That night, rather than the Arsenal game itself, because that night it basically put to bed the risk of the club going out of business. Um, and so it was a sigh of relief for everybody. You know, had we not have got through that game, the club may well have been gone by now. More music now with Rolling in the Deep from Adele. There's a fire starting in my heart Reaching a fever pitch and it's bringing me out the dark I can see you crystal clear Go ahead and sell me out And I'll lay your ship bare See how I'll leave With every piece of you Don't underestimate The things that I will do There's a fire Starting in my heart Reaching a fever pitch And it's bringing me out the dark
Adele and rolling in the deep. So, 1993, then you you left Yeovil and went to Trowbridge Town. Yeah, I, I, left, I resigned as, as manager at Yeovil because um, I say it took such a toll, and I was I was just going over the same. It's like a, a mouse on the treadmill, you know, just going yeah. around and, and not making any progress really in terms of whatever money we brought in. There was still financial problems, and I and I couldn't invest in the squad. I did, we'd finished fourth, and I didn't think that. I could do any better with what I'd got. And the only way you can continue momentum is to get new players or a new manager. And we couldn't get new players. So I left. I actually left to take a job at the Professional Footballers Association, um, running in the what they call the education department, the FSE and VTS, it was called. Um, and at the same time, took a part-time job at Trowbridge as, um, as manager at Trowbridge, yeah. Yeah. Um, how long were we there for? Not long? Um... Uh, season two seasons. Um, All right, yeah, yeah. As a part time, first first season we got really. I, I seem to be good at this. The first season I went in there, all the players had gone with the manager. It was John Murphy. John went to Gloucester, who had lots of money at the time, and he took virtually every single player from Trowbridge. <laughs> so I arrived at pre season. There was like four people and and like a sponge man, and that was it. And um, we ended up literally big stealing, borrowing players all over the place. And unfortunately, we got relegated on the last game of the season away at Crawley, um, which I thought was quite a valiant fight, really, given the circumstances. And anybody that had been to Trebridge at that time would know the ground was an absolute state. Mm. Slope from end to end. The main stand had been burnt down. It was it well, was, you, it was a disaster, really. You must have been used um, to slope, the, sir, by then, weren't you, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, it just seems... I think it's followed me around a little bit as well. Um, but it, there was again. What what you find though is in that adversity, there's some brilliant people there who just do everything they can to keep the club going. Mm. Um, and that was and that was the case. So I say it was disappointing to get relegated on the last game of the season. Um, and then the following year, we did well and we were really competitive. Um, and then we uh, we suffered a real disaster because you haven't got a big squad, you haven't got a lot of money, you haven't got a lot of players. Phil Ferns, who obviously was an ex-Oval player. Um, he broke his leg and he, he had his leg broken. I have to say it was a really horrendous tackle away at Tombridge Angels. Um, and that ruled him out for the rest of that season. Dave, Dave Mitchell, the centre forward, um, I think he did his knee ligaments and I ruptured all my ligaments on the right side of my knee because I, I was playing again. And I ruptured all the ligaments down my right leg away at Sittingbourne. So we lost like two defenders, the centre forward, and the, that was the core of the side really. And yeah. and we fell away and just missed out on promotion that year. I think finished about sixth or seventh, and then I finished at the end of the year. 
And you ended up then, uh, I don't know if I can pronounce this right, San Jose Yablotto? Uh, God, you're having a good go. Yeah. <laughs> you're, that, you're having a good go. Um, yeah, it was, it was a bit... Um, What's it called then? Come on, give it, if you can do it. Yeah. Well, I, well, I had a few little bits and bobs flitting in around between that, but then my next club side was San Juan Jablote. All yeah. right. Go on, say it again, um, say it again. San Juan Jablote. All right, okay, got it, got it. Yeah, okay. a, 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 jabla, a jablate is an oil bird. All it's right. a big bird, a black bird that flies, and around Trinidad there's lots of oil fields, and they call it the oil bird or the devil bird. So okay. the club are called San Jablate, and the emblem is a big black bird, basically. Right, and where, um, where is it? It's, it's in Port of Spain, in Trinidad. Oh, right, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it was a Trinidad and Tobago Pro League. Um, actually, before I'd gone there, I'd done, like I said, I'd left the PFA, I'd gone to the FA for a spell, um, and I'd worked it, with the national teams and various stuff, and I'd done coach education work, and I'd done a couple of courses for CONCACAF, which is the governing, it's like UEFA, but yeah. for that part of the world. Yeah. Um, and I'd done a couple of courses in Port of Spain, and, and one of the lads on the course was a boy called Angus Eve, who was not only captain of Jablote, but was also at the time captain of Trinidad and Tobago. Uh-huh. Um, so I ended up uh, eventually, I was literally cutting my grass here in the Oval. I was on, on a lovely sunny day cutting the grass. The phone rang. Becky, my wife, said, Steve, there's a phone call for you. And it was the vice president of Jablote, who just completely out of the blue said, do you want a job? Oh, um, and I, I, th- I thought it was a, I thought it was somebody taking a mick. I thought it was a wind up phone call, but it turned out to be a genuine offer. And um, so I went out there. Yeah, there's a season out there, which oh, was right. quite interesting. I, I actually followed um, Ricky Hill as manager. Oh right, Ricky well, Hill, the, the Luton, uh, Luton, Luton, player. Yeah, yeah, I remember him. And and, and, and he followed Terry Fenwick, who yeah. was obviously the ex Tottenham and England player. Terry was manager previously, so they had two English managers, and they wanted another one. And it just so happened that Angus knew me and, and uh, recommended me, so um, that's how I ended up out there. More music now, and this time we've got the King, Elvis Presley, and in the get. As the snow flies On a cold and grey Chicago morning A poor little baby child is born in the ghetto And his mama cries Cause if there's one thing she don't need Is another hungry mouth to feed in the ghetto People, don't you understand The child needs a helping He'll grow to be an angry young man someday Take a look at you and me are we too blind to see? Do we simply turn our heads and look the other way? Well, the world turns. And a hungry little boy with a running nose plays in the street as a cold wind blows in the ghetto. And his hunger burns. So he starts to roam the streets at night And he learns how to steal And he learns how to fight in the ghetto Then one night in desperation The young man breaks away He buys a gun, steals a car 
tries to run, but he don't get far, and his mama cries. As a crowd gathers round, an angry young man face down in the street with a gun in his hand in the ghetto. And as her young man dies On a cold and gray Chicago morning Another little baby child is born In the ghetto And his mama cries. There we go then, Elvis Presley in the ghetto. So what came next? Because I, I suspect my... Um, sort of cv wikipedia page is a little bit it goes from 2004 to 2013 so what went on between those dates then um well i came back from trinidad and i took a job at the football association as, as basically as a regional coach to start with but but within a year became what's called coach education manager so from 2000 the end of 2004 begin 2005 i think like that sort of time through to 2013 i was at the football association as the coach education manager Oh, right. So that that basically involved, you know, being around, devising, developing, delivering, evaluating all the coaching programs either here in England or that we did around the world. So that was a great a great experience. But the one the one weakness was with it was the fact that you didn't get a chance to get out on the grass very often and actually coach players. Yeah. So you, you know you did some work on courses with coaches who came in and wanted to learn how to coach. But you didn't yourself get out there and actually work front of house with players, and and after like eight years, I just thought to myself, I'm getting I'm getting stale. My my coaching experience is not extensive. You know, Yeovil mm. and San Juan Jablate were the only two club sites, plus Trebridge, obviously semi you know, non league. And I just thought I needed if I was going to carry on de- delivering courses like that to people who were going to go and coach Champions League winners or Premier League teams, I needed a bit more credibility as a coach myself, and I needed to test myself. Mm. So um, so I moved on. And you, you, you hit the, the jackpot, didn't you? Ended up at Panathinaikos because I remember going to Athens and there was everybody walking around with, pan, path, how do you pronounce it again? Panathinaikos shirts on. Yeah, again, I mean, that was, a, the, I ended up there because of my involvement at the FA, really. Because, yeah. like I'd done with Angus Eve on the, on the job in Trinidad, the, the lad who was head coach at Panathinaikos was a Greek coach called Yanni Anastasiou. And Yanni had been to England to do his B licence course and his A licence course and his pro licence course. So I'd got a really long standing relationship with Yanni. Yeah. And when he got when he got offered his first head coach's job, he said to me, Look, I'm gonna take the job, but will you come and as my number two? Because I want somebody alongside me who isn't gonna be a yes man. Not you know, football's very hierarchical, you get a head coach and you get a coach and generally mm. the assistant coach is, is running around as a bagman for the head coach. Yeah. But Yanni was Yanni was young and inexperienced in coaching roles and he didn't want that. He wanted somebody who could sit back and just have an overview of things and be there when he needed somebody. So it suited him and for me to get out and go somewhere like that, it suited me. So it was a perfect fit really. And, and, you know, what were the highlights of, I mean, they were a European team in, in the context of, you know, Champions League or whatever, weren't they in those days? 
they were pretty strong. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that actually, they just, they had a bit of a blip because if you look at the history of clubs in those sorts of parts of the world, you, you'll find that quite often they go bankrupt, quite often they have serious financial issues. Um, there's lots of political problems. You know, FIFA say that politics can't be involved in football, but in places like that, it's, you know, you can separate the two. Um, but we, we got there and they hadn't won a trophy since 2010. I think they'd won the cup in 2010, but I'd had previously had a really, had players like Gibraltar Cisse, um, Gilberto Silva, obviously he played at Arsenal for a long period of time, the Brazilian international. That had six or seven of the top Greek players, um, of the, Costas Katsouranis, people like that. And they were falling on hard times, really. And so they said to, to Yanni, the coach, we want somebody who's going to be prepared to work with younger players and a slightly smaller budget and try and develop something over a period of time. Yeah. Because we can't afford to compete with Olympiakos, who are the traditional sort of powerhouses, really. Yeah. Um, and, and so we knew when we looked at it, was, they weren't at that top level. You know, they weren't at the top table, really. But we knew there was potential. It was a, it's a massive, massive club. Uh, like you say, been to the, they played Ajax in the European Cup final at Wembley. Um, in I think it was seventy one. They got beat again in the semi finals of the European Cup in something like ninety six by Ajax again. So a massive club, and and I've got European pedigree. And mm. I just looked at it, and, and I just looked at it and thought, well, there's a realistic chance that there with them, I could get in the top three or four, get into Europe. Mm. Who in England? Who in England is going to give me a job that's going to give me a chance to get to Europe? You know, I'm not going to get a job at Manchester United or Manchester City or Arsenal or Chelsea or Tottenham um, because I'm not in that niche of people. So it was an opportunity for me to go and do something that I would probably not have experienced had I stayed in England. Now this next one has to go down as the the song that turned us all on to operatic music. It's called Pavarotti and Nessun Dorma.
guys who can forget Italia 90 and the BBC shows Ness and Dorma as their introductory theme music to the programme. So what was it like, you know, uh, working with players uh, like uh, Silver and um, I can't remember who you said now that you said two or three big names. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, that was the issue. You see, when we got there, they just moved on uh, because the club had, cause club had lost their money. So yeah. we ended up, st- we, well, we started with young players, but what Yanni was really good at doing Yanni was very good at finding players who maybe need a bit of reconditioning, for example, had had a bit of bad time. So he, he picked up six or seven players who were top class. I mean, we had Michael Essien at one stage, and, oh, and people yeah. would normally say, you know, they hear a name and they say, oh, brilliant. Michael Kane was a lucky lad but didn't contribute anything oh. in all the time he was there. Yeah. Um, but we signed players like um, Mladen Petric, who had been at West Ham Fulham, the Croatian centre-forward. Yeah. Um, Daniel Pranic, the Croatian left-back, who 78 times for Croatia, I think he's played. He's played for Bayern Munich. He's been in two European Cup finals. So really good players. Might not have the highest status in England or the highest recognition in England, but in European football, were really good players. Mm. Uh, Marcus Berg, the Swedish international, who, who played against England at the, at the last World Cup, um, the centre-forward, you know, we signed Marcus. And we had a real good thing. And the first, the first full season there, we won the cup, which was an amazing experience at, at what they call the WACA, the Olympic Stadium. Um, Sixty thousand people. We played Park Thessaloniki, and it was, you know, we won four-one in the final. It was magnificent. But the, but the best night of all, if you're anything to do with Panathinaikos, the best result of the whole season is to beat Olympiakos. Yeah. Um, and we went to Kerki, which is the Olympiakos home stadium. Um, thought I think they'd played. Arsenal in the Champions League in the week and had beaten them. Oh, sorry, Manchester United in the Champions League in the week in Kerisgaki and had beaten them 2 0. Um, Joel Campbell, the lad who was on loan from Arsenal to mm. Olympiacos, had scored one of the goals. Uh, and we went and we won 3 0 at, at Kerisgaki. Mm. Um, and at the end of the game, the pitch was actually on fire in three places where, where they'd thrown. And there's no away, you're not allowed any away supporters because of the risk of violence. It's all home fans. So it's like 34,000, 36,000 Olympiacos. Mm. Crazy. And we're 3 0 up. Um, and it took us, I think it was two and a half, nearly three hours to get out of the changing rooms after the game. We got back to our training ground, which is in the hills outside Athens, at about three o'clock in the morning. Must so be your natural getting, personality we, we, that did that, mate. Sorry? I say it must be your natural personality that sort of uh, saw you in that situation. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, well, we stayed there for our safety, but when we got back to the training ground, we couldn't get into the training. We couldn't get up the hill into the training ground because from about five miles away, you could just see green flares everywhere because Panathinaikos oh. obviously green. Yeah. And we had to get off the coach, and, and this is like early, this is three o'clock in the morning, and there were grown men, like 60, 65 men kissing me as I'm and, well kissing everybody as we're going up the, and we're fighting our way through the crowd because they're just elated that yeah. it was the biggest away win in 60 years or something so that was the highlight of of, of my time out there because it means so much to the people involved with the yeah, well, I think it just that just kind of shows the whole passion that football, um, you know, gives people. It's it's just, you know, I don't think women can really appreciate. My wife doesn't really appreciate my passion for Man United, but unless you've been there and you've been a part of it, you can't understand it, can you? And it's the same with these guys. You know, your sixty-year-old Panathinaikos fans. You've just beaten Olympiakos. I mean, that's that. That is like sort of what was it? Bill Shankly said, "Is is you know, it's not a matter of life and death. It's even more important than that." Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, and it is funny because, uh, like, they have an expression out there. They say, "Better dead than red." Yeah, Olympiakos wear red. Yeah, and 
and, and actually, in fact, sometimes it, 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 there is, it's a bit sinister at times, and it is in, in a lot of the sort of Mediterranean countries, it can get quite nasty. And, you know, that what we used to see in the 70s with the football violence, that's always an underlying current in their games. And I think football, really, you've got to be passionate about your team. You've got to want to win games. But, you know, it's got to be an expression of enjoyment as well. You've got to, football should be fun. It's, yeah. it's a sport, you know, you, just, you play it for sport. Um and I, you know, I, I now as I'm a bit older, I don't get too excited about winning. Do, don't get too downbeat about losing because it's neither perfect nor disaster. There's always pluses and minuses, and you you have to find them. And I think you try and keep things in balance a little bit more. But to the, to the supporters, particularly when they they've gone years and years and years without anything to celebrate, you know, I think on that night they they could be forgiven. They weren't allowed to the stadium to watch the game, so I think they could be forgiven for going crazy for a few days afterwards and and yeah. enjoying it. Um, was it televised? Well, yeah, the games are televised. Yeah, the yeah. televised live. Um, yeah. But as I say, there's a lot of games where they don't allow any visiting supporters at all for fear of violence, mm. and that's a shame because you know one of the great things is that we we played in the European competition the following years in the Europa League and, and the Champions League qualifiers. You know, you, you played in the Moscow away, and you've got thirty Panathinaikos fans in minus seventeen temperatures in Moscow. And, and they're there shouting their heads off, you know. And it, mm-hmm. There's something about the atmosphere brought by a group of away supporters to a ground. Whereas if it's just all home-based supporters, if the away team are winning, quite often it's like a morgue. There's, you don't hear anything. Whereas if you've got 300 away supporters and the away team's winning, they're really making a, you know, and it adds to the experience, it adds to the occasion. So I think it's sad when it gets to that point that you can't have away support. Now we're down to the fifth choice that Steve's come up with for this programme today, and it's called... Hall of Fame by the script. Yeah, you can be the greatest, you can be the best, you can be the king Kong banging on your chest. You could beat the world, you could beat the war You could talk the guy, go banging on his door You can throw your hands up, you can beat the clock You can move a mountain, you can break rocks You could be a master, don't wait for luck Dedicate yourself and you go find yourself You can run the mile You can walk straight through hell with a smile You could be the hero You could get the gold Breaking all the records They thought never could be broke Yeah, do it for your people Do it for your pride You're never gonna know If you never even try Do it for your country Do it for your name Cause there gonna be a day When you're standing in the hall of fame And the world's gonna know your name
Astronauts be champions, be truth seekers, be students, be teachers, be politicians, be preachers, preachers. Be believers, be leaders, be astronauts, be champions. Standing in the hall of fame. From there, then, you ended up in Holland. I think I'm right. Is it Holland? Is it Rhoda? Is that Holland? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Again, yeah. I mean, all these jobs abroad, I went as a number two with Yanni, with the same fella. All right, yeah, yeah. Because um, Yanni's got quite an interesting history. Although he's Greek, his career really was spent with Anderlecht, Ajax, uh, Rhoda, um, Almira City in Holland, and he lives in Amsterdam. So he's very well protected in that part of the world, and he got a job at Rhoda, um, which is in Limburg, which is in the very corner of Holland. Mm. And, uh, and all I can say is, it, it, as a life experience, it was one of the worst experiences of my life. <laughs> really? really? I, I, yeah, yeah. You well, know, I, I think it was HSBC Bank did a survey of all of their expat work and around the world, and the country that was voted the worst place to live if you were a foreigner was Holland. Oh. Um, it, it, and they, there is something you know, not uh, our fitness coach at Panthenikos would does he was a lovely lad use um, but there's something about there's a degree of arrogance and a degree of you know in Limburg they speak almost their own dialect of, of Dutch mm-hmm. they speak real Flemish so if you come down from Amsterdam and they don't want you to understand what's going on they just speak in their local dialect <laughs> and I found it really really difficult to into the into the people there because you know, nobody wanted to speak English. I obviously couldn't learn Dutch in or Flemish in Greek, um, but it was really, really hard. And there was a poor mentality within the club, really. Um, and again, it's a smaller club. It's in the Eredivisie. You're playing PSV Eindhoven. You're playing Ajax Amsterdam. You're playing Feyenoord. And our job really was just not to get relegated. That's all. That's all you could hope for, given, mm-hmm. given the resources you'd got. You know, and, and the the mentality within the club always. Let's just do enough to stay up, um, and, and really, you know, you're not going very far on that. What sort of crowds were you getting there? Well, there's sixteen, seventeen thousand. I mean, it's a, mm. it's a decent. Yeah, you know, it holds. It's a all-seater stadium. It holds about twenty-three thousand. Um, it's a lovely stadium. It had an artificial pitch, which was a big drawback. Mm. Um, and we used to train on the pitch every day, and people used to be allowed to sit and watch, and it was. Then your training session, then there's no atmosphere. You know, it's like a reserve game. You're, yeah. you're trying to get some tempo into the passing drills, and you can hear everything echoing around the stands. And it, and it makes it just it just kills it, just mm. deadens everything. Uh, so so it was very very difficult. But but we did keep them up. I mean, I left in the end. I left before the season finished because I just said to Yanni, look, I, I, other than you, other than Yanni, I, I can't communicate. I can't make headway with anybody. You know, the players are good, but the staff around the club which is so difficult to work with yeah. and in the end I just called I called it quits and came home just before the season finished and ended up at Yeovil for a while head of, me, uh, head of um, coaching in the academy uh, but but not for long 
No, well, I, well, I went in to, to sort of try and help out initially, and then with Jeff Hallop, and then Jeff hadn't been there long, and it, well, I hadn't been there long, about a week, and then Jeff moved and, and disappeared. Right. Yeah, that's um, right. Which was a bit unsettling. Um, but I, I just, I, I mean, I, I suppose it wasn't what I expected it to be to start off with. When I went back the second time, which we'll probably talk about, it was different. Um, and so I, I was there for a period of time, but I'd already got offers and um, I got an offer to go back with Yanni to KV Courtrike in Belgium. Yeah. Um, so so that's what I did, really. But before before I went, I think I did something that was quite, that was quite good on behalf of the club. We... We all, we organised for a new academy manager, and we got Paul Wilson yeah. down. Paul obviously played here for a long time. That's right. Paul had a he had a great record at, at Scunthorpe and Doncaster as an academy manager, and he was available. And we managed to get him to come back down. Um, and, and, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes. But the saddest thing is what happened subsequently. You know, when I came back for the second time, because I, I think that was a real disservice to the club. But mm. um, yeah, so I had a spell there as head of coaching, which is basically working with the academy coaches, and then moved on to Courtrike. Yeah, uh, but then you ended up back at Yeovil again a second time, 2018. Yeah, I did. I, I came back um, again. When you go into club management, senior football, it really is you know, you have to have one bag packed and one bag left at home because <laughs> you know that, well, the reality is that unless you have an astonishing season in, in Europe, most people get sacked if they're outside the top six. It's ridiculous. I mean, it really is. Um, so what you do is you write, you sign your contract and you make sure your severance clause is really good or as good as it can be. Um, and you try and protect yourself because you know that KV Trike was very much like Roda, very small club, competing with Anderlecht and Club Bruges and Standard Liège. And in actual fact, what you're really doing is fighting to make sure you don't get relegated every year. And if you do better than that, then it's a success. Um, and we were OK. We weren't doing we weren't doing too bad. I looked at the results the other day. They're in virtually the same place as they are now. Uh, they are now as when we left. And they've had four managers since Yanni was sacked, yeah. um, which t- tells you everything you need to know. Um, yeah. yeah. So, it was a, yeah, again, it was a relatively short-lived experience. And then I came back to the academy with Yeovil. Paul was the academy manager. And um, he asked me if I'd, if I'd come back in as head of coaching, which I did. Yeah. Uh, and to be fair, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thoroughly yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, well, that was good then, anyway. Uh, and then you you debunked again and you went off to Luton then? Yeah, well, it was really disappointing. And that's what I was saying. This is, I think, really disappointed me because the academy was, was doing really well in terms of the players. And, and if you look now... Um, you've got Hong Kong, who's now on a two-year pro contract at Wolves. You've got Tommy Scott, who's on a pro contract at Southampton. Um, you've got Joe um, Joe Tomlinson, who'd signed a pro contract at Brighton. All these kids were released at Yeovil and, and just moved on and instantly went and got contracts. Yeah. And we thought that there was a real talent base in the club, but politically with inside the club, for some reason, it just didn't gel. And at the end of the year, the, the funding for my role ceased. So I didn't really have a choice. I didn't choose to move on. No. And I wouldn't have moved on. Um, the role just stopped. Um, and so they said, look, we're not going to fund it anymore. So you need to look for another job. Um, and luckily, Nathan Jones, who again, an ex-Yeovil player, who I'd known through the coaching programmes, he, he wanted me as a number two at, at Luton to fill a gap. And so I took the job at Luton. Oh, it was OK. Well, it was a su- successful time at Yeovil. Uh, sorry, at Luton, because... Uh, you know, Nathan was going through like a you know wildfire, wasn't he? It was going well then. He, he had done brilliantly, to be fair. And I mean, the dis- again, it, things things happen for a reason, I'm sure. And it was disappointing when you know, I got there early October, um, and he left to go to Stoke City in December. 
Mm. Um, and Mick Hartford, who was head of recruitment at Luton, he took over as caretaker manager. Yeah. And, and again, Mick, I've known Mick for a long time because I took Mick on coaching courses years and years and years ago. Um, and Mick, again, Nathan's really young, dynamic, lovely, engaging fella. Mick's very much you know, more relaxed. He's calmer. He's a lovely bloke. He's very engaging. He's a very powerful personality. And he just he just took over and he just steadied the ship and we just worked uh, in tandem really and and he mm. was brilliant. Kev Beard and the goalkeeping coach was great. Inia Nigo, the first team coach who came up to help us, was brilliant. We just kept chalking off win after win after win after win, and at the end of the season we won the title. Yeah, no, great. So so you you left Luton then, did you? you went to this uh, Atra Mitos. Uh, yeah, Tromitos. Yeah, again, again. I mean, things happen. Obviously, Mick was, in a, was a caretaker manager. Didn't want the job on a full time basis. I don't want to be a first team manager. Um, so when they got a new manager and he wanted his own staff, Luton offered me a job away from the first team. But the travelling would have just been so excessive; it would have been impossible to do. To be honest, I'd yeah. like to move and live in Luton. Um, and actually, I thought, well, it's not the sort of job spec I want. So I got another opportunity to go to Greece to a Tromitos. Um, again in the Super League um, and so I went there pre-season and, and um, we started off in the Europa League qualifiers again this season which was great um, but as, as again very, very much like with the, with the core trike and the road situation when you go to those clubs that aren't the big clubs you, you know that really you're you know you're treading water for a long period of time and, and actually as Brian Moore going back to the original chairman at Yeovil, as he said to me, he said, "The day you start working is the day you start working. You notice, <laughs> and in those clubs, and in those clubs, that's a really pertinent comment because middle of middle of November, they sack Yanni again, despite yeah. the fact that he's achieved what they asked him to achieve, which was to progress in Europe. Um, and, and although we were doing okay in the league, not not startlingly, but okay and roughly on track for where we thought we should be." They just sack him and at the point somebody else, you know. So yeah. there again, you find yourself back at, back at home and um, doing your gardening leave, as they call it. Yeah, well, now you've sort of you've really hit the bottom, haven't you? Because you've been, been doing podcasts for Three Valleys Radio. So I mean, <laughs> what's what's next on that, the adventure? That actually, that's going in my memoirs. That is the highlight. <laughs> <laughs> the highlight of my career. Oh well, that's good then. That can't be bad, can it? Well, look, Steve, it's been it's been really interesting, you know, listening to your tales of of Greece and and Holland and Belgium. Um, thanks ever so much for joining us, and um, look forward to speaking to you again on the podcast very soon. I think. Thanks. Been been a pleasure, mate. Been a pleasure. It's time for Glover's Golden Oldies. A look back at some of the Glover's heroes from recent years. This is Three Valleys Radio, my number one station. Community and sports radio from the heart of the West Country.